Welcome to Cineversary, a new podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send a happy birthday wish to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. Everything from a 20th all the way to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. It's May, and as promised, we shine the spotlight on one of the masterworks of the French New Wave, Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows from 1959, this year marking a 60th anniversary. And like any good birthday party, Cineversary invites special guests to join us in the commemoration. Now this time around, I'm privileged to have as my guest Columbia University Film Studies professor Annette Insdorf. She's the author of the book Francois Truffaut, and she also has an essay that appears in the Criterion Collections edition of The 400 Blows. Annette and I will discuss why The 400 Blows is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it has stood the test of time, and more. But first, in case you're curious to learn more about The 400 Blows before I talk with Annette, here's the 411 from Wikipedia. The 400 Blows is a 1959 French New Wave drama film shot in Dialyscope and the debut by director Francois Truffaut. It stars Jean-Pierre Laude, Albert Remy, and Claire Morier. One of the defining films of the French New Wave, it displays many of the characteristic traits of the movement. Written by Truffaut and Marcel Moussy, the film is about Antoine Donnell, a misunderstood adolescent in Paris who struggles with his parents and teachers due to his rebellious behavior. Filmed on location in Paris and Honfleur, it is the first in a series of five films in which Léod plays the semi-autobiographical character. The 400 Blows received numerous awards and nominations, including the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Director, the OCIC Award, and a Palme d'Or nomination in 1959. The film was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing in 1960. The 400 Blows had 4.1 million admissions in France, making it Truffaut's most successful film in his home country. Its theatrical release date was May 4, 1959. The 400 Blows is widely considered one of the best French films in the history of cinema. In the 2012 Sight and Sound Critics poll of the greatest films ever made, it was ranked 39th. It currently holds a 100% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes with an average critical rating of 9.34 out of 10. By the way, in case you're curious why the movie is called The 400 Blows, that French title is derived from an idiom, Faire la quête sans coup, which means to raise hell. Let's lend an ear to the picture's original trailer. Bear in mind, though, that this features a voiceover in French, although hearing part of the score that's used in this trailer, in my opinion, is worth the listen alone. Toute la presse en est moi. Ce gosse vient de faire éclater une bombe. Les 400 coups, a dit Henri-Georges Clouseau, est un film qui m'a positivement emballé. Le film le plus sensible que j'ai vu depuis la guerre. Quant à l'appréciation de Jean Cocteau, elle ne fut pas moins élogieuse. Je n'ai jamais été si bouleversé au cinéma. Il a dit de venir. J'ai dit, il est mieux. Oh merde alors, je lui ai donné un nom, je le nourris. Oh, 
plus sévère pour la société que main réquisitoire. Bonjour, madame. Petit malheureux, va. Et Georges Sadoul écrira dans les lettres françaises L'émotion vous saisit. Elle continue de vous serrer la gorge durant les heures qui suivent cette révélation. Un grand talent nous est né que je salue avec admiration et une respectueuse amitié. Antoine, il m'a sûrement vu. Ton fils, c'est lequel des deux Qu'est-ce que tu vas prendre ce soir Penses-tu Elle n'osera jamais le dire à mon père. Une histoire prenante, sans révolte spectaculaire. Ainsi qu'en témoigne Paul Guyot dans France Soir, le film a gagné tout simplement parce qu'il est beau comme tout ce qui va sans phrase jusqu'au bout de la vérité. Tes parents disent que tu mens tout le temps. Non, je mens de temps en temps, quoi. Des fois, ils... Je leur dirais des choses qui seraient la vérité, ils ne me croiraient pas, alors je préfère dire des mensonges. Au sujet de ce film, tout a été si spontanément et si généreusement exprimé jusqu'ici qu'on ne saurait rien y ajouter. Cette œuvre apparaît comme la grande victoire d'une gageure tenue par ce jeune et féroce critique de cinéma qui a osé affronter le danger de la réciprocité en devenant à son tour metteur en scène. Ce film aura fait écrire à Jacqueline Michel dans Le Parisien Libéré, Truffaut a fait mieux qu'un chef-d'œuvre. Une œuvre rigoureuse, vibrante, belle et sincère, qui nous arrache le cœur doucement, tendrement, sans cri et sans grandiloquence. Les 400 coups ont pour principale vedette Jean-Pierre Léo qui nous révèle un talent étonnant dans le rôle du gamin terrible de ce film. Patrick Auffet, Claire Morier, Albert Rémy et Guy Decomble. Oui, la recherche de l'absolu vous a conduit droit au zéro, mon ami. Pour les autres moins familiers de Balzac, je dirais qu'il s'agit d'une ténébreuse affaire. De toute façon, après ce coup-là, je ne peux plus vivre avec mes parents. Il faut que je disparaisse, tu comprends Okay, enough of the prelims. It's time now to welcome my guest, Professor Annette Insdorf. So welcome, Annette. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on Cineversary. You're welcome. I want to ask you first, when and where did you see the 400 Blows, if you can recall, and uh, why is this movie important to you personally? I believe that I first saw the 400 Blows when I was a teenager, and it would have been at one of the wonderful revival houses in Manhattan. At that time, there were so many to choose from, whether in Greenwich Village or uptown. There were often Truffaut revivals in particular or French New Wave revivals. I was quite young, but I found the 400 Blows to be so striking. I mean, it's not just that I appreciated the story of Antoine Doinel. I knew that I was seeing something slightly different from American movies. Mm. Um, it's true that because I was born in Paris and I grew up speaking French, I had a different kind of relationship to Truffaut's first feature than if I had been merely a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I was finding something fresh, that this was personal storytelling, 
that I was seeing something that didn't come from another person's book. It wasn't an adaptation. This was obviously coming from some lived experience. So it was that personal thing on the one hand, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, it was stylistically innovative. I knew that I had to pay special attention to the way the camera was presenting Antoine Duanel, to the way that the black and white was functioning as opposed to color, to the way that, for example, he would be writing at various moments in the film. I didn't understand it on my first viewing, but on subsequent viewings of The 400 Blows, I came to realize how important the very act of writing is to a neglected child, how he has to make his mark. And... um, The more I saw the film, the more I felt that this was the case. And I remember that at the very end of watching The 400 Blows for the first time, I was struck by that last image, the Mm. freeze frame. In other words, when we see Antoine, who has been running, 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 and then all of a sudden, when he's at the edge of the water at the beach, the camera zooms in, and it's a freeze frame. Right. Now, this is long before freeze frames became the stock and trade of commercials and advertising and 19s and 1970s uh, tv shows too <laughs> but i saw that fortunately before the 1970s when the freeze frame packed a wallop sure and it's not just that it stops the film almost making your heart beating stop you go <gasps> you know you take an intake of breath because you suddenly can't move forward the stasis in a motion picture is pretty staggering Mm-hmm. But the more I watched the film afterwards, the more I realized how important it is that the last frame is arresting. I mean, arresting in the double sense of, or triple sense. You know, it stops the image, it arrests the flow of time, but it also is a mirror shot, a rhyme to how Antoine is fingerprinted and, and mugshot when, when he's photographed after his, you know, being arrested. This is a rhyming shot. He is once again immobilized in the frame. In Mm. other words, Truffaut found a way in his very first film to utilize cinematic language poetically in order to express the psychological reality of the protagonist. He's not the only filmmaker to have done that in Mm. 1959, because don't forget, 59 was the birth of the French New Wave. That's right. The 400 Blows coexists with Godard's first feature, Breathless, and with Alain René's first feature, Hiroshima Mon Amour. And one could say that Godard and René went even further than Truffaut in terms of foregrounding how cinematic storytelling is Mm -hmm. affecting the viewer. In other words, making us aware of the language of the storytelling as opposed to merely the story. And just as a reminder, Uh, Truffaut had a wonderful way of expressing what he would end up doing. This is when he was still a film critic for Cahiers du Cinéma in the 1950s. He wrote, when I was a critic, I thought that a film to be successful must simultaneously express an idea of the world and an idea of the cinema, unquote. And once he began making movies, his work fulfilled these criteria. They didn't merely tell moving stories about engaging individuals, the 400 blows and all that followed. They also explored and expanded cinematic language. 
These are movies that invite us to reflect on how the story is told. In other words, when I tell my students to watch a Truffaut film or Godard or René, I want them to be aware of the magical processes of cinematic storytelling. That shouldn't make us enjoy or feel the film any less. It just has us appreciating the movie on more than one level, not just emotional, but analytical. So these were some of the things I felt not only on my first viewing, but on the subsequent viewings as well. Wow, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you so much for those insights and recollections. Sure. So why is the 400 Blows worth celebrating all these years later? It's 60 years now. So why does it still matter, and how has it stood the test of time? Well, there are at least two reasons, and I'll say at, at, at the, from the outset that this is a movie that is both accessible and non-sentimental. Now, that means that it's got a greater likelihood of standing the test of time than a film that is either sort of self-enclosed and hermetic and doesn't let people in easily, or a typical Hollywood film that depends upon a sentimental attachment to the central character. The way that Truffaut directed Jean-Pierre Léo in his first leading role on screen, he didn't let him smile very much. Um, he didn't want this child to tug at audience sympathies in some simplistic way. And that means that the film is far more interesting than something like Home Alone, French style. <laughs> this is a movie that it's, it's personally illuminating, letting us know something about the childhood of Francois Truffaut himself. Obviously, this is a an autobiographical portrait, but it's also formally innovative. The way that Truffaut tells the story means that a film student 60 years later can study the shots, the formal language, in much the same manner that Truffaut studied the work of Hitchcock mm. before he directed The 400 Blows and other films. Um, the 400 Blows is very much what I would call a pivotal movie in film history, meaning that on the one hand, it reflects how much Truffaut learned from mentors like Hitchcock, like Jean Renoir, and like Rossellini, to whom he was an assistant. Mm -hmm. And then it also influenced a tremendous number of filmmakers following 1959 and the French New Wave in general. Yeah, so I can't disagree with anything you said. Just to chime in a little bit here, I think that it matters and it still it has stood the test of time. In addition to what you said, I think it's one of the greatest coming of age films ever. And I, I mean, I'm not French. I didn't grow up in the the late fifties. I'm culturally so removed from this boy's experience. Not only the milieu in which he's he's uh, developing as an adolescent, but the language the school system, et cetera. But yet there are some universal and evergreen kind of truths that translate across boundaries, across oceans. To me, for example, um, the challenges that Antoine faces in this movie, you know, despite it being 60 years old, I think remain relevant and timeless. Uh, every teenager has gone through growing pains, has suffered emotional highs and lows and felt rebellious or alienated or, or misunderstood at some point in their adolescence. And so to me, this picture makes adult viewers recall their own childhoods and the ups and downs of those teenage years. 
I also feel that it, the 400 blows feels real. That's because Truffaut wisely cast an excellent young actor and allowed him to, from what I gathered in the research, I guess he was allowed to deliver at least some of the dialogue unscripted. And so the film has kind of a freewheeling, episodic feel that seems always on the move to me. It isn't an exaggerated narrative. There are plenty of mundane and predictable things that happen. And yet the story, the movie exudes a freshness and its spontaneity and its style, its narrative and its filmmaking techniques. Yeah, I mean, I think Truffaut does capture both the vulnerability of childhood and the resilience of childhood. But in his own biographical case, um, he was very much a, an outsider, a neglected child who didn't really have his place, literally mm. or figuratively, not in the apartment where he lived with his less than affectionate parents right. and not in school or elsewhere. So this is a movie, The 400 Blows, that reenacts the hooky playing, the cinemania, mm-hmm. the auction of outrageous excuses that the young Truffaut would give to his teachers. Um, in fact, his buddy when he was a child was Robert Lachenay, and Lachenay was an assistant on The 400 Blows. So in the film, you see how Antoine and René, the character René is based on Lachenay, um, their unsuccessful, his unsuccessful attempt to visit Antoine at reform school. You see how when René's father goes out to his club, the boys run straight to the movies. Well, <laughs> when Truffaut's parents would leave for the theater, he would wait 10 minutes and then dash out to a film in a horrible anxiety over the starting times because he was afraid that his parents would come home before him. Oh, funny. You know, so there's so much in this film that is profoundly personal. Mm. Truffaut ran away from home at the age of 11 after inventing an outlandish excuse for his hooky playing. Um, Instead of Antoine's lying about his mother's death, Truffaut told the teacher that his father had been arrested by the Germans. Oh, my. (laughs) In an interview, Truffaut said that this was in 1943 and my uncle had been arrested the week before. There's always some element of truth in children's lies. But he writes, my father came to school to get me. This caused another scene, and I didn't dare go home. Well, his father found him, put him back in the classroom. The school authorities watched him so carefully that he chose to devour Balzac in the municipal library rather than attend classes. Mm. His subsequent flight from home and from school, this led to a series of odd jobs and minor robberies that included a typewriter. He created a film club, and Truffaut's father again tracked him down and finally turned him over to the police. So young Truffaut spent two nights in the central police station, as as does Antoine. He was locked up in the Observation Center for Delinquent Minors at Villejuif. And at that time, in 1948, Villejuif was, as he put it, half an insane asylum and half a house of correction. But that's where the similarities end because we leave Antoine frozen in the freeze frame at the edge of the sea, whereas Mm. Truffaut's departure from Villejuif was arranged by the great film critic André Bazin. And it was Bazin who assumed responsibility for Truffaut and enabled the boy to begin writing film criticism. Wow. So the biography ends, I think, a little bit more hopefully than the motion picture recreation. 
Absolutely. Wow, that's a great context you provided there and many things I did not know or weren't aware of. But it is interesting to think how autobiographical a lot of this story is and and hence uh, just comes across as more authentic, as more truthful. I was just going to mention because probably your listeners may not know what the title means because it's pretty obscure even to be. Yes, please explain. the, The French expression, faire les 400 coups, which is to make the 400 blows, it literally means, I mean, to play, to raise hell. You know, that, right. that's the meaning, but it's, it's a, a very indirect thing, although it does describe precisely what little Francois Truffaut did. Mm. And by the way, in terms of the personal aspect, we should be aware of one other thing. Mm-hmm. He was an unwanted child whose parents did not particularly want him around. It was his grandmother who raised him till he was eight years old. At which, he, at which point he then returned to his parents. And the, the sense of not being loved, I mean, that's the part of what you call the great coming of age. I think for many motion pictures and for many lucky individuals, coming of age includes the unconditional love of at least one parent mm-hmm. or parental figure. And what comes through in the 400 Blows is that he cannot find that in his home or in school. He finds it only indirectly in the movies. Amazing. Why is The 400 Blows dedicated to André Bazin? Because it was this film critic and theorist and this mentor who managed to channel Truffaut's energies into writing about film. And Bazin died just after his spiritual son, began shooting the 400 blows. Is that right? There are a lot of beautiful connections Mm. um, between Truffaut and Bazin, but I should add, of course, Jean-Pierre Léo, because in this child, Truffaut found a younger version of himself, a resilient street kid who substitutes resourcefulness for sentimentality. Mm -hmm. And this boy became Antoine Douanel, not only in the 400 blows, He's already there, a unique amalgam of Truffaut and Léo, but Léo literally grew up before our eyes in the yes. subfilms of the Antoine Duanel series, because a few years later you have the Antoine and Colette segment of Love at 20. Right. By 68, you have him slightly <laughs> more mature in Stolen Kisses. Mm-hmm. Later, it's Bed and Board, and finally, Love on the Run. This is pretty unique in terms of film history that you have an actor playing the same character for the director in a number of motion pictures spread out over more than a decade. I can only think of one subsequent movie that kind of mirrors that, but it's within the same film, and that's Boyhood, where we get to see one child actor grow up before our eyes uh, across, what, three hours or so, uh, a movie that was filmed over, I think, 12 years. That's a recent film, and Richard Linklater has been quite honest in acknowledging the inspiration of The 400 Blows. And that's a nice segue, Annette, to my next question, which is, in what ways do you think this film was influential on cinema and popular culture or set trends? Oh, I think this is a crucial film in terms of inspiration or influence. It ushered in what I call in my book on Truffaut, Cinema in the First person singular. Now, by that I mean it was possible with the technological innovations of the 1950s 
to make movies in a more personal way by 1959 than had been possible before. And that meant that he, Truffaut, could use a lightweight camera and shoot in the street and little quirks that might not have been apparent in previous motion pictures took on great importance. For example, the very beginning of the film. I, I, I consider the opening scenes of movies to be crucial in preparing how the viewer will watch the rest of the movie. It begins with Antoine already making his mark, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, on a pinup. If I remember correctly, he, 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 he gets past a pinup in class and writes something, then it gets passed, and he's punished. He is indeed, you know, ordered to stand in a corner and eventually to leave the classroom. Um, why? Because he was the one who was caught with um, doing something that he should not have done. It's a delightful way to introduce our yes. character. Can you cite any films that uh, come to mind that would have definitely drawn inspiration or, or been influenced by this movie? Not so much a specific motion picture, although anyone who's made a film about childhood is mm. likely to tell you that it was an inspiration. I in sure. fact have a very vague recollection, but it's so vague that I'm not sure I should present it as um, definitive. I think it was Abbas Kiarostami on a panel that I moderated many years ago at the Telluride Film Festival, who, I mean, Kiarostami has made beautiful films about child protagonists as well, mm. and I do believe that he cited Francois Truffaut um, in one of our conversations. I think it's more a stylistic question, this of inspiration, namely a mixing of tones. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that either 400 Blows or Shoot the Piano Player is a drama, certainly not a comedy. There are elements of film noir in Shoot the Piano Player as well as the gangster film. And there are yeah. also many very, very funny moments, especially with the gangsters themselves. The 400 Blows as well, there are moments of exhilaration. For example, when Antoine is on that ride in the amusement park, it whirls faster and faster and faster, almost resembling the zoetrope. That kind of mixture of tones would become very important, for example, to Jonathan Debbie. Um, when he would make a film like, is it Running Wild? Something Wild. Something Wild. Thank you. <laughs> Running Wild is the Marilyn Monroe number in Some Like It Hot. Forgive me. <laughs> I superimposed that. It's okay. You mix your movie metaphors. That happens to all of us. I'm afraid I've seen too many movies in my life, and sometimes they superimpose. Um, no, it's uh, you're absolutely right. Robert Benton and David Newman, <laughs> they wrote the screenplay of Bonnie and Clyde, Mm. hoping that Truffaut would direct it, or or Godard, but I think Truffaut was their choice. And of course, both French directors refused, feeling they could not do this kind of an American movie. But Robert Benton, um, who remained a close friend of Truffaut's until he died, and Benton later used Truffaut's cinematographer Nestor Almendros for his own movies, that would be another example of American filmmakers, but not really mainstream Hollywood. Um, Mm. Arthur Penn is the one who ended up directing Bonnie and Clyde. That's right. And he also became a close friend of Truffaut's. The reason I know some of these things is I was fortunate enough to become Truffaut's translator. Wow. Uh, He he really liked the book that I wrote about his work, which was published in the late 70s. 
1979, I was living in Paris. Um, I, I had taken a sabbatical from my teaching at Yale. And I remember being with Truffaut when he received a request from the New York Times to write an article about Alfred Hitchcock because Hitchcock was going to be honored by the American Film Institute. Right, I remember that. And uh, he answered the Times saying that I was translating for him at that time, mm -hmm. and uh, he'd be happy to write the article, but it would have to be in French, and I would translate it into English. And they said, fine. And thus began my enduring relationship with the New York Times, because after I wrote that article and Truffaut in his inimitably gracious way, he then contacted the Times and said, whatever you were paying me, because they wanted to send him a check, he said, please pay the full amount to Annette Instorf because she's really the one responsible for the article. Wow. It was one of the noblest and kindest gestures of my life at that time. And it led to the New York Times editor asking me to write articles about film from Paris. And that's how I started writing for them. I wrote for Arts and Leisure from 1979 for at least the next 14 years or so, on the average of one a month. And it was all really thanks to Truffaut. Wow, fantastic story. That's uh, that's amazing. And I, I didn't know that you personally knew him or, in this case, was a translator for him. In 1979, the American Film Institute celebrated his 20th anniversary as a filmmaker at, in both Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. And I flew back from Paris with Truffaut to be his translator at all the Q&A sessions at both AFI venues. Wow. And they were showing and celebrating his latest film at that time, which was Love on the Run, a perfect film to be showing in a retrospective mm -hmm. because it was the last of the Antoine Duanel films. That's right. From 1979 until his terribly untimely death, I mean, he was so young when he died in, uh, was 84, um, he still continued to make films. In fact, arguably, he made one of his most successful films in the early 80s, and that was The Last Metro. Oh, that's right. I've, I've not seen that one. I, that's on my list. It contains autobiographical elements because mm. it is set in Paris during the German occupation. Okay. Um, don't forget, Truffaut was born in 1932. So he was uh, a young boy between 1939 and 45, the years mm -hmm. of the German occupation of France when That's World right. War II made its mark on impressionable young minds. Mm -hmm. So the last Metro, even though it is truly the story of the uh, actress played by Catherine Deneuve, who is hiding the theater director, who is her husband, Heinz Bennett in the cellar underneath because he's Jewish and would be rounded up otherwise. But still, throughout the film, there are tiny details that attest to what Truffaut as a young boy would have observed during World War II. What's the moral to the story of the 400 blows? What themes or messages are explored in the movie? Aside from the obvious of the vulnerable but resilient child who finds a way to literally make his mark and find his place in the world. One of the things that I have found throughout Truffaut's filmography, and it begins in The 400 Blows, is the importance of language. 
in this film, it's the printed word that is the key to freedom. For example, Antoine forges an absence note from his father. He loves Balzac. He takes refuge in the printing plant. Of course, writing or, or copying can also get him into trouble, as we see. I mentioned how his first act in the movie is to make his mark on the pinup of a young woman. <laughs> but language as the way for a child to express himself and to communicate with others, whether directly or indirectly, that to me is something very important in terms mm. of theme in The 400 mm. Blows that is explored, by the way, even more in future Truffaut movies like The Wild Child. Okay. I mean, to me, it speaks to me about the importance of proper parenting. I mean, we see how the neglect and abandonment of a child, the failure to understand him, and as you said, the lack of communication with and empathy for, it can lead to acting out. It can lead to rebellion and anger and delinquency. So it almost serves as a bit of a cautionary tale if you want to look at it that way. Although I don't know if Truffaut is necessarily going for that message, but I still think that that's a possible interpretation. It's more of an interpretation, though, because Truffaut really disliked didacticism. Okay. <laughs> In fact, he wrote negative reviews of well-intentioned movies because they mm. seem to take too much of a high moral ground. And, mm. you know, I, I don't think he wanted to make films as cautionary tales. Okay. You know, this was a much more personal thing for him. I'll reveal something because it's in the biography that um, Serge Tubiana and Antoine de Beck wrote about, what was it, 15 years ago, about Truffaut. Truffaut did not know at the time that he made The 400 Blows who his biological father was. Interesting. It's a long story, but his mother um, had given birth to Truffaut outside of wedlock and then married uh, the man who became what was in, in essence his stepfather. And there was not all that much love manifested, nor could you say that he was an abused child. They just didn't mm. show a whole lot of love. At the time that he was making the next feature of an Antoine Duanel film, and that was Stolen Kisses. Mm -hmm. And there, Antoine goes to work for a detective agency. Well, to make a long personal story short, Truffaut hired a detective at that time to find out who his biological father had been. Oh. And he learned that it was a Jewish man, a dentist, who lived outside of Paris, if I remember correctly. And then Truffaut drove to this man's home and he sat in his car until this man came out of his house. And then Truffaut took a look at him, didn't get out of the car and drove back home. He never made contact with his biological father, although he knew his identity at that, that point. That is incredible. I did not know that. Yeah, a lot of people, I mean, Truffaut was a bit secretive about certain aspects of his life, partly mm. because he didn't know exactly where he came from, biologically speaking. And in the film, you may notice how the mother is depicted even less sympathetically than the father. The father's a decent guy. He doesn't want to hurt the boy in any way, but he's frustrated. And of course, part of this stems from the representation of a family in which the boy senses that his father is not, quote, really his, unquote. Right. I mean, it's his stepfather, too, which adds a bit exactly. of irony to, to the exactly. whole proceeding. 
Yeah, no, this is absolutely fascinating. And I, I, you are the perfect person to kind of shed light on the backstory of Truffaut and how, how it can kind of uh, add insight and relevance to the story of the 400 Blows. I just want to finish the thought here on some of the other themes that I've kind of identified here. And you, of course, feel free to chime in as well. But I think one of the messages is our innate desire to be free from the constraints of rules, of boundaries, and, and, and of institutions. I think this is certainly true of most adolescents who yearn to buck the system, to think for themselves for the first time in their lives, and to form a separate identity from their parents. Another theme could be the awkwardness that comes with sexual curiosity. So Antoine is of that age. He's a pubescent boy who passes around pinup photos. He talks about sex. He's repulsed by the thought of childbirth. And he even starts to notice his mother's female form in a different way. And, and of course, her philandering, too. And yeah. lastly, the, the volatile and dangerous nature of a young and curious mind, as I think is a major message here. So consider how Antoine lights a candle in his shrine to Balzac. In the candle, what does it do? It starts a fire. Well, that maybe suggests that his passion cannot be contained and it's combustible. Mm -hmm. We also witness how his transgressions increasingly get worse from lying and accidental arson to stealing and then escaping from a juvenile home. Your first thematic point is for me uh, particularly important because in this movie, the indoor shots, very static, you feel the character's entrapment, mm -hmm. but outdoors, outdoors there's panning, tracking, visual lightness that corresponds to the character's mobility. Yes, uh, that great that great bird's eye shot of the gym class going for their little run right. is just, it's, it's pure joy. I mean, if you compare, for example, how Antoine is framed by the camera in the scene with the psychiatrist, you know, he's kind of immobilized by the inner frame there versus the exhilaration in the amusement park, mm -hmm. the celebration of movement itself. And that is something that is shared by a child like Antoine and by a filmmaker like Truffaut mm -hmm. who is making motion pictures. Yeah, it's a great point. So, Annette, this is a birthday celebration after all, and birthdays are all about presents, except it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. So, in your opinion, what is the 400 Blows' greatest gift to viewers? The experience of watching this film has an alternation of exhilaration and poignancy. Not every film can give you both. And also an alternation of tenderness and lucidity. As I said, it's not sentimental. We care about Antoine, but he doesn't in a facile way engage our empathy. We're lucid about, as you pointed out, how this kid can be dangerous, I mean, you know, to himself and others as well. So it's the complexity of the 400 blows in its tone and vision that makes it a continual birthday gift. For my take, I think it's that last shot, the freeze frame and everything leading up to it, which suggests multiple things to me. You could view it as Antoine has finally found the elusive freedom he's long sought and on his own terms. He can run freely to the ocean, which he's always wanted to see. But then again, on the other hand, he now appears to me at least cornered with nowhere else to run and the ocean to his back. So the final shot, which is like this freeze frame zoom in, 
is also poignant because it breaks the fourth wall. He's looking at us. He's creating an intimacy and inviting the viewer into his world and his triumph or his dilemma, whichever way you want to view the finale. And no one else in the film up to this point, in my estimation, has really understood or empathized with him. So that last shot is almost a question asking the audience, will you, will you understand him? Yeah. I mean, that and that last shot has been talked about for <laughs> many decades. Sure. Uh, you know, in the book that I wrote, I, I saw it even in, in another context because um, the 400 blows can be seen as Truffaut's poetic mark on the wall or his attempt to even the score with his parents. But by the last scene, the sea washes away Antoine's footprints as the yes. film sort of cleans the slate. Uh -huh. and in, the context, in the context of the erasable or dissolving nature of these incidents and of cinematic continuity itself, it's important that the last shot of the 400 blows cannot be erased. In other words, Antoine's face is indelibly frozen when it becomes a still. When he's arrested for stealing a typewriter early in, earlier in the film, he's fingerprinted and photographed for the files. The mugshot is in fact a freeze frame which conveys the definitive and permanent way in which he has been caught. Mm. So my feeling at the end of the film is no longer free or exhilarating vis-a-vis -vis Antoine. Where does he go from here? Where can he go, given that he can't simply go home, nor does he have another space to which he can escape? So it's the poignancy of that ambiguity at the end mm -hmm. that stays with me. Very well put. All right, Annette, what are you currently working on that listeners should check out, or how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Well, it was published last year, but my latest book is called Cinematic Overtures, how to Read Opening Scenes. Um, ah. It's actually already in fourth printing from Columbia University Press. Fantastic. <laughs> it, it has done better than anyone expected, um, perhaps because I include so many different kinds of movies. There are about 44 films whose opening sequences I describe and analyze. And by the way, Truffaut is in this book. Um, the particular title of his that I included is Day for Night. Mm. And that is one of um, his most popular movies mm -hmm. because it's about the very process of filmmaking. And among the ensemble cast is none other than Francois Truffaut himself playing the director of the film within the film. So for those who prefer to read their books electronically, uh, the Kindle version of Cinematic Overtures includes access to over 44 film clips. In other words, I, we, we actually created the, you know, the files of the clips themselves to illustrate what I'm describing as the best kind of cinematic storytelling. Oh, what a good idea. That sounds like a great read and uh, a great way to discover the book is through the Kindle version if you have that. Thank Terrific. You. All right. Anything else you wanted to mention project-wise or way to get a hold of you? The most visibility that I have these days in New York, apart from the teach, uh, the classes that I teach at Columbia University, um, for quite a few decades, I've been moderating the Real Pieces series at Manhattan's 92nd Street Y. Hmm. And that's where I get to interview very well-known and respected film artists, especially directors and actors. Um, I recently did onstage interviews with Glenda Jackson. Before that was Ray Fiennes. 
Before that was Julianne Moore. Wow. In the past year or so, my guests included Steve Carell, Hugh Jackman, Jane Fonda. <laughs> uh, and most of these um, conversations are now on demand. In other words, one can find them on YouTube or through the 92nd Street Y. So that's sort of my main activity outside of the classroom. Fun. Sounds like uh, it's only a matter of time before you get your own talk show, Annette. <laughs> well, if I can find the time for it. <laughs> well, listen, I want to thank you again so much for being my guest. It was a real pleasure talking with you and uh, hearing all of your observations, insights, anecdotes, recollections. Fascinating stuff. And look forward to uh, keeping it out for your future work and the books that you've already written. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. My thanks again to Professor Annette Insdorf, who only had a limited amount of time to speak with me due to an extremely busy schedule, but to whom I'm most grateful for the opportunity to interview. She is the definitive expert on this film and Truffaut, so it was a real treat to talk with her. All right, let's move on to standing ovations. This is where I give a shout out to a movie, a book, a website, a TV program, a podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. My standing ovation for May is a three-part miniseries. It was released in 2017 on Netflix, and it's called Five Came Back. In this series, narrated by Meryl Streep, five renowned directors from the modern era tell the tale of five master filmmakers from the classic Hollywood era who joined the armed forces to document World War II. The latter five are John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens. In Five Came Back, their wartime footage and films released before, during, and after World War II are put under the microscope by the likes of Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Guillermo del Toro, Lawrence Kasdan, and Paul Greengrass. Now, if you're a lover of classic movies and you enjoy behind-the-scenes looks at all-time great filmmakers, this, in my opinion, is a must-see. I came a bit late to the party. This was released a couple years ago, but I'm glad I discovered this miniseries, and I hope you check it out. Now, would you do me a favor? I want you to visit a website, cineversegroup.com. This is the portal for my Cineverse Film Discussion Group, which I launched 14 years ago and which continues to meet weekly in the South Suburban Chicago area. Cineverse is a democratic film society that watches and then discusses a predetermined movie that our members pick on a rotating basis. At cineversegroup.com, and that is spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions, you can read more about the films we study, and a lot of other goodies. I founded Cineverse and launched this podcast to foster an appreciation for an intelligent dialogue about memorable films. Everybody digs watching movies, we get it. But interpreting a movie, talking about it, sharing opinions and theories about it, that's even more rewarding. To me, the real pleasure is in digging deeper to learn how and why a film was made, the impact it's had on culture, society, and other movies, why that film has the power to evoke a strong emotional reaction in each of us, and what it can teach us today. Hey, do me another favor too, would you? Send me some feedback. If you want to email me a comment or a suggestion for a picture we should feature on this podcast, you can reach me, Eric Martin, at cineversegroup at gmail.com. Favor number three, please spread the good word about this show to your friends and family. And, you know, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us good reviews on whatever platform you hear it from, especially iTunes. That would mean a heck of a lot. Finally, make plans to return to Cineversary next month. That's when we'll take a ride on the wild side with Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson, the stars of Easy Rider, which celebrates a golden anniversary in 2019.
This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, folks. They are just getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen. Thank you.